Welcome to the Freedom in Captivity podcast, an abolitionist podcast for Maine. I'm Catherine Bestman. I'm the host of the podcast. And this week, we are going to be talking about alternatives to punishment, alternatives to incarceration. We've been talking over the past few weeks about the ways in which our incarceration industry is oriented towards punishment. And we've been talking about the ways in which punishment doesn't actually deal with the harms, doesn't actually deal with the harms that need to be redressed. So today we're going to be talking about alternatives to punishment, things that would work differently than punishment works, things that would actually work to create safety, to create a healthy society. Our current system, as we've been talking about over the past few episodes, heaps harms upon harms without actually addressing or ameliorating those harms. We've heard about the terrible impact of incarceration on children and their families, on women, on people with substance abuse disorder, on black and brown community members, and so forth. So today, we're going to be talking with four incredibly inspiring people who are involved with initiatives to develop alternative approaches for redressing and responding to harm, approaches other than simply punitive ones. So our guests are Bruce King, who is the co-executive director of Maine Inside Out, Laura Ligori, who is the founder and executive director of MindBridge, Kells Park, who is the former policy and community advocacy coordinator of the Restorative Justice Institute of Maine, and Leo Hilton, who is the executive secretary of the Maine State Prison Branch of the NAACP and a regular columnist for the publication Mainer. So my opening question to to our guests today is, how do we begin to imagine alternatives to our current punishment system? What are some of the impediments to change? How can we confront and address those impediments? What should we be doing? So I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot this question first to Bruce. Bruce, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think you know when, when we start this whole conversation off, I, I think that we have to start off as um, really recognizing you know what our current system is, what is the legacy of it, and you know there's been a lot of discussion um, you know especially in the last couple of years around the uh, you know, racial and, and, you know, post-slavery, but definitely not post-racial um, institution that is, you know, the American incarceration system. And so, you know, I think that just starting there is an important, um, is an important place to uh, kind of gain perspective. You know, we are, our system itself was really always meant to subjugate people. That's, that's the basis of it. Um, and really other uh, a group of human beings that we saw as surplus and um, wanted to oppress. So, you know, with that in mind, we find ourselves in a, you know, in our current state where we have, you know, 2.3 million people, you know, in the, in the criminal justice system, as it's called, and um, no real means of addressing any harms that have taken place. Um, you know, the current system is really more built around just warehousing individuals and you know it's done in the name of deterrence but it it generally fails to when you see the recidivism rates and you see just you know the turning um you know the turning doors uh you know of the system so you know i think we have to see why do people deviate and whether that deviation is you know, warranting some sort of retribution because, you know, at best, our current system right now is really built around the idea that if something happens, something must be done. And, 
well, somebody do something. And nowadays it's, well, lock them up and hope that they're not going to do it again. Um, you know, which I think is a really destructive point of origin to begin from. You know, I myself, uh, part of my story is that I was incarcerated for three and a half years in the federal system. And, you know, when I look at my own um, pathway there, it really had to do with a lack of a sense of belonging. Um, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And, you know, a Mexican-American growing up in, in Bath, Maine was not really a place where I found a lot of connection. So, you know, I tended to find, um, you know, groups of people that were considered deviant because I found them to be more accepting. And so I got caught up in, you know, in basically running drugs. And that was where I found community. That's where I found home. That's where I found acceptance. And um, that that fulfilled that for me. I really appreciate this question. Uh, Catherine, how do we begin to imagine alternatives to our current punishment system? And I think a big part of this conversation is how do we imagine alternatives? You know, last time we all sort of got together and talked a bit about all of this before uh, coming in for the recording today. And you know, a big problem that we talked about is not having a solid blueprint. So we don't have a solid blueprint of what that looks like. Um, we, we have a, a growing understanding of the legacy of our incarceration system. We have growing understanding of the history and its impact and the way in which it absolutely doesn't deal with the harms or ameliorate the pain of what came before it. So how do we begin to imagine a new system? And that's really hard for folk. That's particularly difficult for people to imagine something that they've never known, right? Bruce mentioned 2.3 million people incarcerated. So 2.3 million people becoming incarcerated becomes a, a very dominant narrative of what is right and just in our society. 2.3 million people incarcerated means that that's become the, the dominant normative narrative that functions implicitly and unconsciously for, for many, many Americans. This idea when we think about justice and how to right harms when we're defining what justice means for us, for many people, that definition of justice comes hand in hand with a carceral system. So how do we begin to imagine something that we've never seen any differently, that we've never experienced in any different way? We have a very difficult time coming up with an imagination and prospect what might be without any sort of building blocks to create that new image with. We need something, some sort of pieces there. And, and I hope we'll come back to that in a second because I think those pieces do exist in our society. Um, I hope that maybe uh, Kels or, or Leo or maybe Bruce might talk about the ways in which these pieces already exist and now we need to kind of give them some energy and some air. So how can we really critically engage in a productive way that starts to transform our society is, is really the question. The what about is often this instinctual response to move away from something because we feel uncomfortable, we feel afraid about it. And it's okay to feel afraid about the unknown, um, but it's not okay to stop it in its tracks and we obviously need a different system. So I, I look forward to us kind of finding our courage in that and thinking a little bit more deeply about what can we do rather than sort of running back to old systems that are clearly, clearly not working. Um, and with that, I'm going to pass the mic to Kels. Thanks, Laura and Catherine for the, the great question. Um, 
Yeah, so I come from a restorative justice background and have been in the work for about six years now doing facilitation with um, families and working with individuals who have caused harm and who have been harmed. And I think one of the biggest things that I've noticed in that time is that um, almost always there's more to the narrative. There's more to the story than what you would get on say a police report or an incident report at school. Um, usually there's actually harm on both sides or some sort of harm that's been caused by the system that could very easily um, or is most likely to go unaddressed just by going through the sort of traditional criminal justice system. And it actually makes me think of one thing that I learned from doing some work at Maine State Prison with Leo, who we'll hear from soon, which is uh, the first time I went in there, one of the guys mentioned that the criminal justice system actually incentivizes people to come through and not take accountability. So it is better off to not take accountability and maybe take a plea deal or something like that, but not actually admit to what you have done because it could harm your case than to say what you did, be able to apologize and go through a process of reconciliation and healing with that person who was harmed if they are open to that. So I just want to name that, that there are gaps in the criminal justice system in terms of healing that uh, we sort of think of it as the go-to place where if a victim has suffered, that's how they're going to get justice in some way. Um, and that really uh, many of the people I've worked with who have been harmed actually just want their questions answered. <laughs> they they want to be able to say, why did that person break into my garage and how am I supposed to know that they won't do it again? usually there's an answer to that and there's some reassurance that can be provided and that can kind of let them be at ease a little bit more. So in restorative justice processes, I think some of that healing can happen um, and it, it takes place, you know, different levels of harm require different processes and have different sort of time stamps for when people are ready to come together in some fashion. Um, but that it is possible. And I think the other thing I'd like to talk about, um, which is when we're thinking about envisioning another way of being that does not rely on our traditional modes, uh, traditional modes of punishment is to allow ourselves to increase our threshold for um, acknowledging that harm happens. So this is to sort of normalize for us the fact that harm happens every single day <laughs> to all of us, to different degrees, sure, but it's something that's in our daily lives. And so how we handle that is something that we need to get really good at on an individual level and community level. With that point, I'll just share that restorative justice and other forms of approaching harm, mediation, transformative justice, a lot of these skills and practices actually rely on um, 
tools that are pretty intuitive to us as human beings. Um, it, part of that evidence comes from the fact that restorative justice really is based in um, indigenous practices as well as practices of black and other people of color. And um, that these are things like sitting in circle that have been used time and time again to repair harm. Um, that being said, we have to be really careful with how we use these practices and adapt them over time so that we don't end up um, certainly appropriating, which I think has happened uh, a fair amount in, in the field of restorative justice for sure, but also re just recreating harm that is done through the criminal justice system and trying to implement these practices. So one example is with restorative justice, um, particularly in the state of Maine, but really around the world, there's examples of this where the there's a tension between creating practices that exist outside of the already existing system or creating practices that are aligned with and sort of enmeshed in the current system that we have. So an example of that would be school resource officers or probation officers doing quote unquote restorative justice practices, which is not to say that they can't approach people differently um, and try to improve that within their practices. It's just to say that if we are then making that their role, um, there's some conflation of this sort of new vision that we're trying to create and this old system that um, we really maybe need to be thinking about minimizing. Um, and I would say the risk of that is that we can end up recreating the disproportionate harm that already exists within the criminal justice system. So an example of that is in New Zealand where um, there's a process that the Maori people who are indigenous to New Zealand shared some of their practices and they were intended to reduce uh, the amount of contact with the juvenile justice system through their family group processing. Um, and what ended up happening was that the contact with the criminal justice system did reduce, but it was predominantly for white youth. And for Maori youth, that disproportionality was still there. And I think it might've actually increased. So again, this is just to say, we have to be very careful with who um, is sort of holding these practices and cultivating them as we are envisioning different ways to interact with each other and approach harm. And with that, I will hand it over to my friend, Leo. Thank you, Kels. So I've been incarcerated now for going on 13 years. And I'm currently coming in from Maine State Prison. And uh, throughout these 13 years, I've seen a great amount of harm done. And one piece that Kelsey uh, spoke on was how the system itself, um, it encourages a lack of accountability. One of my first 
interactions with a defense lawyer was him telling me that I needed to plead not guilty so that we could have time to form a defense, right? To at the very least argue down what amount of time I could get. So where growing up, the first thing we learn is that we need to take accountability for our actions, to admit when we're wrong and to become better through that process. When you, we enter the criminal justice system, it's the exact opposite because by taking accountability, we quote unquote admit guilt, right? And when we admit guilt, then the system says, okay, you have committed harm, you have broken the social contract, so therefore you need to be punished, right? It is not a, hey, you committed harm in society, so therefore how can we work together to help you take accountability while also helping to address the cause of what it is that you did wrong, right? What it was that led you to commit that harm. And so while there has been some progress uh, towards you know, around this conversation of alternatives to incarceration, alternatives to punishment, um, there's still no infrastructure for it. And I think Bruce talked about that earlier, right? There's no, there's no infrastructure, there's no mechanism that is currently in use for adult offenders, right? So there may have been progress dealing with, uh, with youth offenders and uh, um, the uh, deviation process of um, avoiding prison and avoiding the entrance into the system by our youth, and that's great. But what happens when you have people like me who grew up in the foster system, right? That is a well-meaning system of oppression that suppresses our ability to make mistakes, to make decisions on our own because we live under a system that has such restrictions on us that our foster parents can't say, go ahead and, and, and go to this party that we know you're gonna make bad choices at, right? But you will be able to learn while you're young. What happens to those of us who live under that environment and then like myself, turn 18 and then all of a sudden we have freedom, don't know what to do with it, and in my particular case, I, I was dealing with uh, the recent loss of my father on the one year anniversary of my foster mother's death, both deaths that I witnessed and coming from an emotionally impoverished youth where I did not learn how to articulate emotion. The only emotion that was acceptable in my home underneath my father's rule was contentment joy or silence. There was no ability to express sadness, sorrow, grief, none of that. So when we find ourselves in this in-between period where we don't know how to act, <laughs> we, we haven't had the freedom to develop decision-making skills so that for me, robbing a house sounded like a great idea to come up with money to be able to help my brother avoid the prison system. Totally twisted thinking that makes no logical sense, but to an 18 year old mind whose emotional development was stunted from probably 10 years old, that sounded like a good idea. And then when the time came and the alarm went off and my mind broke, 
because I did not know how to handle such a situation. I then went on and created a large amount of harm and nearly took two lives. Now, this was me at 18 years old. And then at my sentencing date, my judge tells me that by giving me this 50 year sentence with 40 years hanging and 16 years probation, that I will be absolutely no good to society until at the very earliest 58 years of age. So here I am at 31, pursuing a master's degree, uh, living a life of service to my God and to my fellow man every single day of my life, and yet I am of no use to society according to this current system. So I say all that to say that restorative justice has a place even in the realm of that whataboutism, right? What about the violent people? Well, <laughs> there's a difference between violent people and people who commit violent acts. Because until that moment, I thought myself to be a kind and loving and generous person. The people who knew me saw me as a kind and loving and generous person. But in that moment, when my mind broke and reverted back to the brutal lessons that I learned from my father of how to protect my family with violence, in that moment, I, I committed a very violent act. But still, shortly thereafter, I reverted to the kind, loving and generous person that I knew myself to be, and that is who I am today, right? So within this environment, Kels alluded to it earlier uh, about the restorative justice work that we have been doing in here. And through that work and through that leadership development under Kels and uh, Ryan Anderson, the former uh, executive director of um, the Restorative Justice Institute, we learned that restorative justice is more than a mechanism. It's more than circle practice. The restorative and transformative justice is an ethos. It is a way of thinking. It is a way of being. It is a way of interacting with the world. And so when we can expand our thinking beyond this idea that we can only look at mechanisms, right, rather than looking at people, rather than acknowledging the humanity within each human being, then that's what we need to do in order to get to this next stage of imagining. There are thankfully some things in the works right now that experience has told me I shouldn't say too much about just yet. Um, but between the outside support and the current uh, DOC administration, there is hope for the institution of restorative practices and transformative practices within this system, even as it stands. Ultimately, we know that the foundation of this system needs to change from one of retribution to one of restoration and transformation, one that is focused on rehabilitation and helping people reintegrate into society, right, to support and deal with the underlying issues, the underlying causes of crime, rather than continuing to deal with these symptoms, Progress needs to be made. And there are people out there, there, there is this history that Kels mentioned of the indigenous practices. So when we say that we have no example, we do have examples. We just tend to shy away from change and shy away from looking to those older examples that can lead us into a more restorative and transformative future. And that's what we need to do. And that is what we have the ability to do.
but in the recently in the discussion around parole, our state leaders continue to show fear, fear of change, fear of acknowledging humanity. And it's, it tends to be shrouded in this idea of uh, trying to keep the community safe, when in reality, the decisions that they're making and the reasons that they put forth, even including our governor and the attorney general, saying that they want to protect the community, right? It seems much more like they are protecting their political career, like they are making the politically wise decision to hedge their bets about what they can and cannot say and what they should and should not support. When if you look at the evidence that when you support someone and you surround somebody with support and, and, and encouragement rather than punishment and oppression, you provide an opportunity for those people to grow and to heal and to learn. Now, on that note, I want to segue into our conversation by highlighting the fact, uh, I want to bring this back to Bruce uh, to start our conversation about the legacy of the system. He mentioned uh, that we live in a post-slavery but not a post-racist society, when in reality, we still live in a society where slavery is legal under the, under the 13th Amendment. There's actually a Netflix documentary about it where slavery is abolished except as a form of punishment. So on that note... Yeah, um, I just kind of want to like pop in a, a little, I guess my own take on things for a little bit. Um, so some time ago, Mindbridge, we worked with five districts. So that meant their representative district attorneys and their offices, so the ADs that were part of it. And we went through kind of the very foundation, the legacy of the criminal justice system, what Bruce was alluding to, and particularly, we stopped on Eastern State Penitentiary. And you know, the establishment of Eastern State Penitentiary, for those who are uninitiated, this is quite the formidable building that was established in 1829 and then continued to function as the prison until 1971. And it is this extraordinary building with a center focal point and then these spines that kind of come up from the center, which were these individual cells. And the idea for these individual cells uh, this was built by Quakers at the time, and the idea was penance, right? That, uh, that the building was supposed to be really formidable and was supposed to inspire true penitence or true regret in the hearts of criminals, and that people would be brought here, and that you know, through service and being able to think and you know, contemplate in that solitude and isolation, you'd be able to, to be able to heal. And what it did is that it proved torturous and utterly destructive. Um, the experiment really failed. What the Quakers were going for was wonderful and, and great, and then it failed, but it kept being promoted because of exactly what Bruce was talking about, was that even though the experiment failed, it became a place to send people that America deemed undesirable. And at the same time was born this idea that those who, quote, broke laws those criminals were those who were in need of rehabilitation. And it introduced this idea that those who broke laws had an affliction, that there was something specific about who they were, intrinsic to who they were, that was sick. 
And I worry about this narrative a bit um, because I, I think that fundamentally this idea is still with us. And I, and I wanna bring us back to what, you know, Bruce and, and Kels and Leah, we were talking about, about the rehumanization of people and how we can start to see to Kels's point of harm as being part of our society. That this is indeed part of our society. Harm is real, it's in our society. So how do we as a society hold this and not just move people that we see as undesirable or who have an affliction as if they're somehow fundamentally biologically different from us, but they are not, they're human beings. They're human beings that need you know, support and that this is what we're gonna do as a society. We're gonna be with this as a society and fundamentally as a culture and changing our narrative around it. So, so I guess one of my wish lists um, is, is for us to you know, sort of move into this rehabilitative place that Kels and Bruce and Leo were talking about so we can see harm as part of a functional component of our society and how are we coming together for this sort of transformation. I'm just thinking, Leo, something that we've talked about um, in the in developing the work that you have been doing uh, inside MSP is the challenge of creating, trying to envision and creating something different while existing within a system that does have oppressive forces within it still. Um, and so I'm curious, like how you and others that you've been working with have sort of found a focal point for how to move the work forward within those circumstances. Um, and what's been keeping you to have that drive to keep going? Because we've talked about the fact that you all have some internal structure now where you can really just keep doing good work within the prison without necessarily having a ton of external support. So I'm just, yeah, curious about your, your process um, and mindset in approaching restorative justice within the setting that you're living in. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so part of it is just pure stubbornness. Um, as you know, we started with uh, six incarcerated people working together as our core group. Um, one moved on down to minimum, which was great. And another one just, um, he had to step back because of the lack of buy-in uh, from staff. Because when we're working to introduce something like this, you know, tackling this idea of rehumanizing people, right? Um, like Laura, about your point, um, the importance of rehumanizing people. When we are looking towards this goal, because that counts to answer your question, that, that's really the goal, right? Is that I and the men that we work with have reached a point of acknowledging. And once we reach this point and we realize that, hey, you know, I'm worthy of love. I am worthy of acknowledging my own humanity and dignity then this is something that we want to share. And for me, what, what really dug into my heart when, when, when you and y'all came in with this uh, restorative justice, what really hooked me is the power, the power that I see within this, the, the, the power that exists to transform everything that I see every single day. People run, 
I see people every single day, the men that are around me, you know, they, they lose themselves in video games or they lose themselves in card games or frivolous conversation or talking about people because that is the prevalent mentality. That is what this system breeds. The person who sits on their bunk and does nothing all day gets the same amount of good time as someone who pursues education, personal transformation and service of their community. And so that's what keeps me driven. And that's what keeps us driven and continually motivating each other is this hope and the glimpses that we've seen in the participants in the, uh, uh, the program that we created together on restorative and transformative justice, right? We see that hope and we see that the same hope that was brought up in us we see in the men that we are teaching and in, in these circles that we facilitate where that potential for realizing their own humanity comes up, where that spark comes in and it says, hey, I might be worth something. I actually have a voice because when you enter this system, your voice is automatically stripped from you. And that's something that I think, um, Bruce, you might be able to speak to a little bit, too. Absolutely. I, you know, I. There, there's so many amazing points here that I'd love to touch on. And as I said to everybody beforehand, I'm a little off from my second dose of, uh, <laughs> of the vaccine. So I'm going to try to make the salient point around here. But, you know, I, I really think it comes down to, um, you know, to I'll say it. And this is a really hard thing to say because I'm not sure how we how we address it. But, you know, human beings are communal beings. Fundamentally, we are communal. Um, we are not just about one-to-one -one relationships, although those are a big part of things. And we're also, but what we're really not about is these huge, huge um, societies. And so when we create systems, it's trying to address how do we live amongst, you know, billions of people. And, you know, that's, it, it, that, our, 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 you know, our brains can't really conceive of what, um, what our relationships become once we get above like a hundred people and, and I'm sure Laura knows the specifics, but, um, but so it's very easy to dehumanize one another and it's very easy to inflict harm upon people that you don't connect to at all. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you mentioned the, the social contract and we look at the, you know, Hobbes writing about like the Leviathan and how we, you know, we give up our, our freedom for safety and things of that nature. And, you know, really what that has to do is the way that we organize society in such a huge um, scope that really what the criminal justice system becomes is theater. It and I go back to that idea of, okay, something needs to be done, so we're going to do it. And if you look at the courtroom, the courtroom is really not that different than a theater. And it's interesting that I work at a theater organization, but I, I can critique this kind of theater that we have, which is, you know, the gavels and the, and the roles that everybody plays, and essentially the cast that each individual in that room is cast into. And really what that does is it creates this illusion of safety, this illusion of doing something, but without putting any of the onus on the community to actually become communal. Um, you know, I, I, I think one of the, my, my, the hardest things that I have to address is that I did get something out of prison. And that's a really hard thing to, to admit because it's not in any way a promotion of, of prison. 
Um, but what I got was a smaller community of men that I was able to live around, live with, compromise. I was, and, and I was also, um, I also had uh, obligations to that community. Um, and that's really what I was looking for. Um, you know, I was really looking for a way to connect to, to other people on a smaller level um, and be more than just one incident that happened. Um, and like I said, I'm a little bit, I, I, I'm kind of spinning in my thoughts right now, but you know, that accountability and that connection to one another, I think is so vital for us if we want to actually do something around addressing the harms and addressing the way that we view um, one another in society. Um, you know, with, with Main Inside Out, we use theater really as a means to get people in the room. Um, once we're in the room and once we're connected, and I think that's true of restorative justice. Restorative justice isn't about two people going into a broom closet and, and figuring out their differences. I know that when there were conflicts in, you know, when we were away, we would say, all right, we're going to cover you guys and you go and work it out in the broom closet. And, you know, usually one person would walk out. Um, you know, it's, it's, they, I don't think that's the way that we're supposed to, we're supposed to address, um, you know, conflict. But I also know that we're not supposed to address it as a million tiny beads without any sort of, um, esteem, self-esteem, recognition from one another. You know, I in my mind, I can just see all these, like, it's almost like when you used to turn on the TV and there wasn't a channel, you know, all those little dots, like that's what we become eventually. That's what the system creates. That's what our society creates. And so those harms never get addressed. The engagements never get addressed. Um, and we don't have tools to do that. So these smaller communities that we're able to create, I think, are vital to um, to creating an alternative to incarceration. Uh, you know, the hard part is you hear that and you look at the world the way it is now and say, how do we, given how many people exist on the world in the world, how can we, how can we redevelop that? How can we actually have those levels of accountability um, when society when you know, we're not going to get any smaller as communities, but I think it's about creating those sub communities and, and becoming accountable to one another, um, you know, across those lines. So I don't know, I'm sorry if I don't address the, <laughs> if I didn't quite address the, the question, but, um, but there's just been so many amazing things that have been touched upon. And, uh, you know, I think especially the voice of those who are still, you know, behind the wall need to be taken into consideration, because this is the reality that, that's being lived every day and it's not addressing the harms. It's not bringing us closer. Um, it's, it's bringing us further apart. So I, I think we all, we just have to, like, like Laura was saying, we can't imagine something that we have no point of reference for. Um, and I'm not sure how many of us have a point of reference for addressing harm anymore either. So, you know, Michelle Alexander even talked about morality when she spoke at, at Bowdoin, um, I guess it was a few years ago now. And she talked about, um, you know, we just, we need to rediscover our moral imagination and become a little bit more expansive of, um, of what being moral or immoral really is rather than being stuck to what we're told. So I, I let you, I, I appreciate you guys letting me rant there. I'm not sure to pass who to pass it to, but. Well, if I can actually um, jump in, because uh, thank you for that, Bruce, you know, to, to speak to 
the hard part of, of acknowledging what good can come out of this system, not because of the system, but despite it oftentimes. Um, but dealing with that community, right? The, the need for community. This system reinforces itself so much. And people talk about how the system is broken and we spend so much time and we actually waste a lot of energy with this idea, entertaining this idea that the system is broken when in reality it's not. It works exactly the way that it has been designed. Every change that has been instituted, every policy that has been changed has been a deliberate action. Small things can change, surface things can change, superficial things can change, but the fundamental reinforcing nature of the system itself that keeps people ensnared once it has you, that doesn't change. That has yet to change, which is exactly why the foundation of this system, the retributive foundation of this system needs to change. And a perfect example of this is happening right now as we speak. My eldest nephew turned 22 this year. He has been in the system from the time he was 14. And sadly, he came up here a few years ago. And again, something good that came out of it was that I finally was able to develop a relationship with him because I've been out of his life for most of his life. And through this time, we developed trust in each other. We developed a true loving family relationship. And now he's out in the world and he has been out for just over a year. <laughs> and right before that one year anniversary of his freedom, there's an accusation that was thrown out by his ex-girlfriend's mother, right? And now he is preparing to turn himself in tomorrow to serve 30 days in jail for an accusation that has since been proven false. The way that this system works, this probation system, right? I've heard it time and time again over the years, people complaining about probation officers and changes have come. And there are a few, at least a couple that I know of probation officers who see probation as an ability an opportunity to support people in their reintegration into society. Yet the prevailing attitude is that probation is there for supervision and to protect society so that whenever anyone violates a condition of their probation, they are swiftly returned to incarceration. So March 22nd, his ex-girlfriend calls the police alleging that he slashed a tire on a car. He finds out the next day because that night he was, he was two hours away with someone else. And as soon as he found out, he did everything right. I was with him the entire time. We were going back and forth on the phone and he was seeking my guidance on how to handle the situation. So he contacted his probation officer who had left him hanging for the first six months of his release where he had to take the initiative to check in with her and to do everything that he needed to do 
to remain free and to re he actually had to reach back into prison um, to get support and guidance for how to stay free. And that in and of itself is an issue. But he contacted his probation officer. He called the police. He offered to come in for an interview, uh, inform the police of his alibi and did everything that he needed to do, check back with his probation officer a week later and asked how he could get in touch with the DA for how he can best handle this situation, how he can let his voice be heard. And throughout this entire situation, his voice meant nothing. So after he asked his probation officer to get in touch with the DA, the very next day, he went in to report and he was arrested, spent the next six days in county jail because he got kicked out of his domestic violence class. So his violation was getting kicked out of the class, which was and he was kicked out of the class because of the pending charge that later proved false. And now he has to serve 30 days for a probation violation that stemmed from a lie because the burden of proof does not exist when you're on probation. An accusation leads to incarceration because all the probation officer needs to say is that they don't know whether or not the alleged act was committed or not. So this young man who drew near to me and, and we spent time together and I helped him grow into a man of integrity and honesty during the couple of years that we spent together. He's been out, he's been struggling and doing everything that he needed to do, not making the best decisions always. He's still 22 and we none of us make great decisions always at 22. But through all of it, all of his falls, he's, he's reached out to me before the crisis, during crisis and after crisis for how to handle situations. And he has fought, he has, every time he has fell down, he has gotten up, has not committed any new crime throughout this entire situation. And yet he is back in jail because of the snare that was set for him through this probation situation. And then he went to get a new probation officer and this new guy is fantastic but the damage is already done by the old probation officer who falls into that pervasive mentality of if you violate your probation, go straight back to incarceration. So the system is built to reinforce itself because through the entire time that we are in here, we are taught to, de to depend on these external structures so that our internal structures atrophy so that when we are released into society, there's no internal structure to sustain us. So the pressures of the world cause us to, tr to crumble. I've seen it time and time again. So as we continue this conversation about alternatives to punishment, it needs to be informed by those that it continues to harm. So now this young man, his journey of growth is interrupted once again because of a system that rather than supporting him and helping him overcome this situation, used this situation as an opportunity to draw him back in.
And with that, I'll be interested to hear what Laura might have to say about that. Oh, I don't know if I have a lot to say about that other than I, uh, I totally agree that, yeah, I mean, my field of expertise isn't necessarily in the criminal justice system. For what little I've known from being, you know, with Bruce and working with others and, and observing and reading and seeing is that we're really good at maintaining systems. We're not too good at reinventing them. And I think that that's really where it lies. You know, how can we reimagine something else? Um, yeah, you know, and I'm sorry to like, you know, bring the baton again, but I'm gonna pass the baton again to Kelso because Kelso, I'd love to hear more about this idea of like, what can we imagine? We know that the system doesn't work. We know it just reinvents itself. We know it perpetuates harm. We know it keeps people in the system and is gonna keep people in the system. So I'd love to hear some ideas about like, what does something else look like? What are the, what are the strengths that already exist in our communities? That because things are happening in our communities. It's hard, I know it's hard. And Bruce pointed this out, it's hard to work on a communal level, especially with the breadth of which we're existing in right now. But I know that there are some really beautiful examples out there. And, and so maybe we can raise some of those up. Yeah, I'm happy to, to go into that. And I think, you know, one thing I wanna say or just sort of build on around what Leo had shared is, um, Part of I, I it would be hard to not think of the um, few bad apples uh, mindset that a lot of people bring up when they're talking about the criminal justice system and and policing, in which you know it's just a few bad apples um, that are that are causing harm out there. And really, what I heard and what Leo was sharing is. Um, it oftentimes actually is people, it involves people doing their jobs and that is where harm ends up occurring. So I, I can think of one example as well um, in which I worked with a 10 year old who had a school resource officer called on him. The first time I met him was in court um, and he was terrified. And, um, but the system had worked. The principal didn't know what to do with him anymore, passed it up to the next channel, who then passed it along to the next channel. Um, and, then, and then we stepped in. And so I think one thing we can do is make sure that what we have existing um, for supports, restorative justice is one option. There's so many other things that um, also need to be lifted up in terms of um, like housing support that people provide, job support that people provide um, that really surround, are really all parts typically of when harm is caused. Um, and with this specific incident with the 10 year old, it came down to a conversation really where um, he had just moved to the area, had lost his dad and really, really wanted to make friends. <laughs> and so part of it, he was able to articulate that. And then part of how he moves on is how can he get support in getting some of those 
needs met and having those around him understand him better. Is he going to do some things again? Probably. But that just means we need to be persistent in providing that support and accountability and, and not think that it's a one-time thing and, you know, not forcibly remove that person from a situation necessarily. Um, yeah, so I will end with that. And I think I'll hand off to if anyone else has thoughts about around what we've been sharing. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's been so much put out there. I think, you know, the one thing that I would say is I think we need to resist our desire to always just do something, just just somebody do something. Um, you know, I think that there, that impulse is, is really deeply embedded in, in the human psyche and very often taking pause and really, you know, before we, we jump to, to, you know, trying to, to solve something actually, you know, the solutions that we come up with are often far more harmful than, um, than would be otherwise. And I see that a lot in, in, you know, legislative work, because I also sit on the commission for the status of racial indigenous and tribal populations with the state. And, you know, we're going through just these stacks of proposed bills and there's so much that good that can come out of it. But then I see a lot of bills that are just clearly coming out of somebody who had a bad experience and they went to find, a, you know, a lawmaker and they're like, we need a law to address this. We need a law to address this. We need a law to address this. And I think what we've ended up with is just a stack of <laughs> of laws that that may have come from you know somebody's somebody's best intentions and historically many of our worst intentions when we look at the history of you know uh, of the criminal justice system in the United States. Um, so I think that's the core of a lot of the problems. I think we really do need to question um, question that impulse. You know, so I, I would say we we look at the drug war especially as well as many other laws that exist through that lens, like, well, clearly somebody just wanted somebody to do something, so they did it, and here we are. Um, and I think then, additionally, we have to, we, we have to look back at, at what does a human being really need? And I, I keep going back to that, you know, the more research I do, the more I see that it really is about connection. That's what people are hurting for. That's one of the biggest reasons why people fall into, you know, into into poor decision making. Um, you know, I, I love that example of the 10 year old, the 10 year old was asking for something and was not getting their needs met. Um, so you want to punish someone for having a need that we all have, and just not knowing, not knowing the best way to approach it. And I think, you know, I always say, and I get a lot of blowback for this. I'm like, you know, we're just adults that are kind of driving giant meats or children that are driving giant meat skeletons as adults, you know, we're, we're physically larger, but we still have those same basic needs that we had as, as children. Um, and so I think that if we, if we look at a lot of the actions that we take through that lens, then we also find a lot of the answers, um, you know, and for me, I know that was, that was what I was looking for was community connection and acceptance. And especially with juvenile, um, you know, systems, that's overwhelmingly the case. But I would also say that it's largely the case for adults as well. Um, you know, from everything from from being involved with illicit activity in terms of the black market to things that are, you know, to 
to violence. I mean, people not being able to figure out a way to address the harms in any better way. So that becomes what they resort to, um, which is why I'm a strong advocate, not only of restorative justice being within the systems, um, but also, you know, transformative processes that exist within our daily interactions. And that could be the workplace, that could be our home, that, you know, the idea that all this should just be relegated to a courtroom is just, it just doesn't acknowledge um, everything that happens on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and once again, going back to, you know, what Laura said is that harms are part of society. But if we're going to solve every harm by incarcerating people, then we're really cutting off our best teachers, which is conflict and, and tension. And it's not always telling us that we need to lock somebody up. In fact, I'd say it virtually never is. So with that, I'll, I'll pass it on to Laura. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. Um, yeah, I'll just be brief that, yeah, Bruce, you always hear me talk about that we need to slow down and really gain some, some real awareness about uh, the method behind our madness. Like what is happening in that action? What do we really need and come to a realization of what that is, which is easier said than done. But I think that one of the things I wanna talk about briefly is, um, you know, Bruce, you mentioned like, what do human beings need? And I think we need our relationships. We are social creatures. We fundamentally need one another. And I think so much of what's happening right now is that we have a pretty dysfunctional relationship with ourselves. That if we're putting 2.3 million people behind bars, that is one heck of a dysfunctional relationship with ourselves. So how can we, how can we come back to heal our relationship with each other and really put some energy, some intentionality, some drive behind our relationships. One of the things I heard when I was working with the DAs, you know, we talked about community forms of prosecution and coming up with different ideas of things that we could do that were out of the box. Um, and one of the things I kept hearing over and over again was just how busy they were with, you know, two to three times the recommended caseload from the American Bar Association, like crazy, crazy caseloads. And so when we talked about this true desire to interact with the community, to be in relationship with community, and I think that was legit. I think there was a real desire to do that, that fundamentally there just wasn't time. And so how can we prioritize that time? And that means that needs to be incentivized as well. We need to really build this in so that we can know each other. The society is functioning a level beyond what we were built for. Evolutionarily speaking, we were not built for this kind of broad of a society. We were built to be with one another in our villages. And I think rehumanization um, is something we talk a lot about, and I'm not sure we really know how to do that. And, and a big component of us rehumanizing one another is coming back into right relationship with one another. And to do that, we need to prioritize it. So I think that that's, that's one of the things that kind of comes to the, to the tip of my tongue. Um, I will pass the mic to Kelsey. Yeah, I think certainly um, one thing that comes to mind for me is for just people to pay attention to policy that is being put out there right now. Um, learn about it and get involved as best as you can. There are, you know, there's a policy within Maine's legislation where if it passes, we wouldn't have that situation with a 10-year-old. Um, so just want to lift that up as being really important. And I think the other thing I will close with is 
Um, I was in a, a conversation the other day. I was staying with my grandparents' small town area and um, someone stopped over and it was the it was actually a police officer who was um, neighbors and, and friends with my grandparents. And I noticed uh, as I was sort of just listening in the background some defensiveness coming up um, around, you know, just don't believe everything you read, that kind of thing. And um, for me, it's, you know, it's not just this individual who I think has that little flare of defensive or bristles that come up on your back when you hear something like the word abolition or when you start talking about anti-racism. And so um, my invitation is, you know, when you start to feel that sort of uh, defensiveness um, or sort of bristling back that uh, you take a second to pause and really try to see if there's a reason you aren't um, listening to the stories that are being put forth and how can you listen to those more deeply. Um, so just approaching with a sense of openness and I think Laura used the word earlier, a sense of courage moving forward um, and that we don't have the roadmap. So it's something that we're gonna be continuing to build and adjust as we, as we go. And with that, I will pass to Leo. Thank you, Kels. So what a lot of this really comes down to is an individual responsibility to realize and acknowledge our own humanity and to put a concerted effort into acknowledging the humanity in others. We talk a lot about the what needs to be done and we look at the structure and we look at policy, but Kels, you, you really made a good point there about a personal invitation to everyone. It's so easy for people to look at this big, nasty thing, these huge systems, and say, there's nothing I can do. And that was something that I did for a long time in here was I'm locked up. I'm a prisoner. There's nothing I can do. And when you feel those feelings of helplessness, helplessness goes hand in hand with hopelessness. And when a person loses hope, they lose their meaning in life. So in order to reestablish that hope and that and to dispel those feelings of helplessness, there needs to be an infusion of meaning. Right? We need a meaning. We need a reason to get up in the morning. We need a reason to go on. And when that reason is something as simple as acknowledging the need to acknowledge the humanity in another person, there will always be that need. You will always have a reason to get up every single day of your life. So in order to do this, in order to look at these structures, in order to get away from holding up these extreme examples that fuel the narrative around what about ism, right? In order to do these things, we need to make a conscious decision and dedicate ourselves to stop being driven by fear and start looking at how each one of us can be a part of the collective healing that needs to happen and how even those of us who have 
caused harm. How can we be a part of that process? Because those of us who have caused the most harm are also the most dedicated and passionate about bringing healing into the same communities in which we have caused that harm. So please acknowledge the humanity in yourself and acknowledge the humanity in the people around you because there is no telling what power exists just within your personal social circle. Thank you so much for this incredibly powerful, um, informative, and inspiring conversation. You're, you're, you're calling us to dream and imagine. You're calling us to, uh, as Laura put it once, lean into our courage, lean into the unknown, and take on the hard work of figuring out what kind of a system we actually want to build in place of the system that we have now. So with deep appreciation to Bruce King, Kells Park, uh, Laura Ligori, and Leo Hilton for joining the show today, uh, we're gonna we're gonna sign off. Uh, next week we'll be speaking with uh, Michael Cabete of Maine's ACLU, who's going to be moderating a conversation with the Black Power organizers about their specific abolitionist goals for Maine. This is the Freedom and Captivity podcast, sponsored by the Portland Media Center. Josh Riddle is our wonderful sound engineer. Our program is opened and closed with music by Samuel James. Talk to you next week. Thank you.